I will mention that before we have a word of prayer here this morning, that uh, um, we add Rollins' sister-in-law, uh, Lynn. She was diagnosed with liver cancer. She's in a lot of pain. And uh, please uh, pray for her and and for her husband. It's just a disease is terrible, isn't it? Um, it's not something that any of us who have dealt with it um, in any way enjoy. <laughs> it's a part of sin, the problem of sin, isn't it? And that's our topic. That's been our topic uh, for a while. We're looking at different things about sin. And so... Uh, what the Bible has to say about it. And so before we uh, begin uh, in our study this morning, let's bow our heads and let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together here uh, as a, a people searching for truth and a people bonded together, our hearts together, because we love Jesus. Uh, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be very present guide us and direct us as your word promises that he will do, uh, leading us to the truth and help us to have a love for that truth. Uh, we lift up before you those on our prayer list, those that we've mentioned today. Uh, we pray that you be very, very near to them. And uh, Father, I, I humbly ask that uh, you will be very near to me as I uh, present these things uh, from your holy word. I pray from uh, for the Holy Spirit to guide my tongue. May they be your words uh, and not my own. And I humbly ask that hearts may be touched with with what is brought uh, here this morning. And may they work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, as the Bible says, and be in the kingdom. We humbly pray this in Jesus' name, for he is so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. This is uh, message number 390. Uh, I've entitled this message, A Matter of Will and Conscience. A Matter of Will and Conscience. It's part of the series that, uh, that I've, I have entitled, The Sin Issue. And, uh, and I encourage you um, uh, to, to listen to messages up to this point in this series, uh, a lot of truth there, a lot of things that we misunderstand that we hear from uh, some supposed scholars or the world or whoever, um, but uh, we need to trust the Bible. We need to trust God's Word uh, to lead us into the truth. Everything that you and I own, uh, friends, as far as material possessions, everything we own in this world uh, you cannot take to heaven. But there are some things that you can develop. There are some things that you can acquire. Uh, there are some things that you can come into ownership of that you can take with you to heaven. And I know some of you out there may be going, What? What is he talking about? Now, I'm not talking about material things. In fact, as far as material things, we can't even take our own body to heaven. You realize that? And that's very clear because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52, and, and Paul's speaking here, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be 
changed. And so we see here that before we go to heaven, if you die, and if I die, and we're raised up, we will be given what? We'll be given a new body, right? And if you're alive when Jesus comes, the scriptures say that he will transform our vile body into an image of his glorious body. And Paul says they're in the twinkling of an eye. And we'll receive bodies. That is a body like Jesus has now. You realize that? By the way, uh, in reading this scripture from Paul, what is the twinkling of an eye? Have you ever wondered about that? The Greek word there means the jerk of the eye or the downward motion of the eyelid, literally. That's what it means. So it is the moment of time it takes for half a blink. <laughs> and, and so sometimes, you know, we can blink slow. Sometimes we can blink fast. So I leave that up to you. But that's, that's what Paul's talking about. Uh, Bible commentator John Gill in his exposition of the entire Bible. Notice what he says about, uh, uh, about this. He says, the apostles' meaning is that the change upon the bodies of living saints will be so quick that it will be done in a trice before a man can shut his eyes and open them again so that it will be as it were imperceptible. I think that's pretty good. In the twinkling of an eye. So, there are no material things that we can take with us out of this world. But there are some things that we can take with us out of this world. And I want to talk to you about one of those things, and probably the most important of all. It is something that we use commonly in our, our everyday speech, uh, and yet there are many people, if you ask them, they couldn't define exactly what it is. It has a great deal to do with the plan of salvation, friends, and it is the conscience. Now, before we get into talking about the conscience, I want to be clear that it is different than a person's will. Some get confused between the conscience and the will, and they think they, they're the same thing, uh, but they, they are not the same thing. And one reason, maybe, uh, that there is confusion about that is that there are religions that teach that you are born in sin, that you're born to sin, and so if you're born that way, then no matter what decision you make, there is really, there really was no choice in the matter, see, because you're always going to sin, and that's what's taught. And I hope that you can see how that kind of thinking, that kind of teaching, would confuse many people as to the differences between the conscience and the will. Now, Webster's defines free will as the power of directing your own actions without restraint by necessity or fate. It's a very interesting definition. We have the power to make choices. We can make small choices in everyday life, you know, like what food we're going to eat, uh, what clothes we're going to wear, what to do with our free time, right? And there are also large choices that we can make. Choices that affect our lives for years to come. You know, like the way we treat our friends. And how we treat our enemies. And so the power to make choices is called free 
will. We will uh, we use free will when we, we, we choose between good and evil, right? And if we choose to do good things, what happens? We'll grow closer to God and closer to, to others who do the same. We'll strengthen our character since we will be able to turn away from selfishness, see. We will put the good of others alongside our good. And in this way, our enemies can become our friends, see. And that's what Jesus talked about. Love your enemies. That's what he was saying. And, and, and so we put the all good, we treat people all in a good way because that's what Jesus did. And our enemies can become our friends sometimes just because we treat them well. Let me share this with you. It's from the book Child Guidance, page 209. It says, The will is the governing power in the nature of man, bringing all the other faculties under its sway. The will is not the taste or the inclination, but it is the deciding power which works in the children of men unto obedience to God or unto disobedience. Every human being possessed of reason has power to choose the right. In every experience of life, God's word to us is, Choose you this day whom ye will serve. Let that sink in. Don't be just a, a, a cursory reader. Think about what's being said there. Choose you this day whom ye will serve. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Everyone may place his will on the side of the will of God, may choose to obey him, and by thus linking himself with divine agencies, he may stand where nothing can force him to do evil. As an example of what's being spoken of here, let's look at Luke chapter 22. And in particular, let's look at verses 41 and 42. That's Luke chapter 22, verses 41 and 42. This is Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And so it says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Right? And then what's he say? He says, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The will, friends, is that faculty of the mind by which we determine either to do or not to do an action. The faculty which is exercised, you see, in deciding among two or more objects. We've got to make a choice, don't we? So we're going to make a choice on what we're going to embrace and pursue. Now listen to me. The will is directed or influenced by the judgment, by our judgment. Okay? The understanding or reason compares different objects which operate as motives for us. And the judgment, uh, our judgment, determines which is preferable. And then the will decides which to pursue. And so we see here that Jesus was making a choice between whose will to follow, his own human will or that of his heavenly Father. 
And so the will is based on judgment through the understanding, uh, through our understanding or our reasoning. Okay? The proof of free will is seen in an invitation that we find in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, remember? This is where God says, Come, let us reason together. See? So in other words, we reason with respect to the value or importance of things. We then judge which is to be preferred by us, and then we make a choice. And so God has given each individual the power of will, the power of choice. So why is it that we struggle with sin over and over, controlled by some besetting problem? Well, God tells us why. And it has to do with the will. Now let me share a few statements with you that I think will help clear up any confusion uh, concerning a person's will, their power of choice. What is it? What does it mean? How do you exercise it? This first uh, quote is rather long, but it's from the book Steps to Christ, uh, pages 47 and 48 says, many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You desire to give yourself to Him, but you're weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you, but you need not despair. Now, how many have, have gone through that before? And maybe you still are. You have those doubts. You always seem to fail. And, and we read here, though, you need not despair, friends. We all go through that. It goes on, it says, what you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to men. It is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections. But you can choose to serve Him. You can give Him your will. And that's what Jesus did there in the garden, isn't it? You can give Him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Thus, your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your affections will be centered upon Him. Your thoughts will be in harmony with Him. Desires for goodness and holiness are right as far as they go, but if you stop here, they will avail nothing. Many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. They do not come to the point of yielding the will to God. They do not choose to be Christians. Through the right exercise of the will, an entire change may be made in your life. 
by yielding up your will to Christ, you ally yourself with the power that is above all principalities and powers. You will have strength from above to hold you steadfast, and thus, through constant surrender to God, you'll be enabled to live the new life, even the life of faith. So she says here, everything depends upon the right action of the will. Every time we make a choice, we're either choosing to do the will of God or our own selfish will. If we are to be saved, our choices must be the right choices that please God. And friends, the only way our choices will be the right ones is if you do as Jesus did and deny your will in favor of doing His will, in doing God's will. Here's another uh, quote I want to share with you. It's from the book, The Desire of Ages, page 324. It says, We must inevitably be under the control of the one or the other of the two great powers that are contending for the supremacy of the world. It is not necessary for us deliberately to choose the service of the kingdom of darkness in order to come under its dominion. And we, we studied that, remember, spiritual possession series that we did. We studied how that is the case. And she says, it's not necessary for us to, to deliberately choose to serve Satan to come under his dominion, right? And that makes sense because Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me, right? It's like a default. She says, we have only to neglect to ally ourselves with the kingdom of light. If we do not cooperate with the heavenly agencies, Satan will take possession of the heart and will make it his abiding place. The only defense against evil is the indwelling of Christ in the heart through faith in his righteousness. Unless we become vitally connected with God, we can never resist the unhallowed effects of self-love, self-indulgence, and temptation to sin. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about temptation. We may leave off many bad habits. For the time, we may part company with Satan. But without a vital connection with God, through the surrender of ourselves to Him moment by moment, we shall be overcome. Without a personal acquaintance with Christ and a continual communion, we are at the mercy of the enemy and shall do his bidding, she says, in the end. So, what must we will? <laughs> right? What must we will? What must be our first choice always if we are not to fall under the power of Satan? Well, we give our will to God. We give our governing power to God. We give our power of decision over to God. Here's one more. This is from the Ministry of Healing. Page 176. God has given us the power of choice. It is ours to exercise. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot control our thoughts, our impulses, our affections. We cannot make ourselves pure, fit for God's service. But we can choose to serve God. We can give Him our will. Then He will work in us to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Thus our whole nature will be brought under the control of Christ. 
through the right exercise of the will, an entire change may be made in the life. Notice this, she says, By yielding up the will to Christ, we ally ourselves with divine power. And friends, that's what we need. We can't overcome Satan by ourselves. There's no way. We need divine power to do it. And so, by yielding up our will to Christ, we ally ourselves with divine power. We receive strength from above to hold us steadfast. A pure and noble life, a life of victory over appetite and lust, is possible to everyone who will unite his weak, wavering human will to the omnipotent, unwavering will of God. So God has given all men the power of choice. And the choice that must be made in order to overcome sin is the choice to place our will into God's hands. And that's what Jesus was doing right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the choice that Jesus made three separate times there in the Garden of Gethsemane. His human will was saying, no, you can't go through with it. You can't do this. It was... And he said, but nevertheless, my will is just to quit now, but I give my will to you, Father. That's exercising the right choice, see? And giving God the power our power of choice. Not my will, but thy will be done. That's what he said. So the will is the deciding power that God has given to all people. And it's when the deciding power chooses to give itself over to God that he can then work out his will in your life to do and will according, as the, the word says, to his good pleasure, which will always please him. But when we use poor judgment and choose to do our own will, choosing something that falls short of God's mark, right? We commit sin. And we have then affected our conscience. Because they're different. And I want to address that now. I want to talk about the conscience. The will is the power to choose. Let's talk about the conscience. You know, the New Testament talks a lot about the conscience. There are many kinds of consciences that are described. The Bible talks about a good conscience. It talks about a pure conscience. Uh, it talks about a defiled conscience, a seared conscience, a conscience without offense, a cleansed conscience. It talks about a sprinkled conscience, okay? It also talks about a perfected conscience. So the Bible has a lot to say about the conscience and the condition of a person's conscience. All right. Now, Bible prophecy, specifically Daniel 8, and of course other places, it tells us that Jesus is right now mediating for his people in the judgment. Or how, how does Daniel describe it? He says, the cleansing of the sanctuary, right, that's in heaven. And one of the principal things Jesus is doing in this hour of judgment has to do with your conscience. Your conscience must be in a certain condition, you see, before probation closes, if you're going to be saved. So the condition of your conscience, friends, is very important. It's utterly important. 
And as I said earlier, maybe the most important thing. But before we look at, at that, let's try to define just what the conscience is. Think about this. If you were going to define what the conscience is, how would you define it? <laughs> how would you define it? It can be kind of hard. The Holy Spirit, I've heard that before. People say, well, your conscience is the Holy Spirit. No, that's not true. The Holy Spirit works upon a person's conscience. But here's a definition. Let's look at some definitions that, that should help us. This is a definition of conscience from Webster's Dictionary. And I always look at uh, the 1828 edition of Webster's. That's one of the most accurate. It says about the conscience, it says, The faculty, power, or inward principle which decides as to the character of one's own actions, purposes, and affections, warning against and condemning that which is wrong, and approving and prompting to that which is right. The moral faculty passing judgment on oneself. The moral sense. Yes? Yeah, are we still? Yeah, I'm still in the room. I don't know. Strange. Let's check. Testing one, two, one, two. We still have sound in the room? Yay! Okay, thank you very much. All right, so that's the definition from Webster's Dictionary about conscience. The moral faculty passing judgment on oneself. And he says... The moral sense. Now, I took a, a couple other dictionaries. I wanted, to, I wanted to check this out. The Longman Dictionary of Contemporary English, 4th edition, defines conscience this way. It says, It's the part of your mind that tells you whether what you are doing is morally right or wrong. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary Notice what, how it defines conscience. It defines it as self-awareness of an act being in harmony with one's moral standards, inner witness of spiritual and moral truth. Now that's a pretty loose uh, I, you know, uh, definition of conscience. It's not as accurate, let's say, as Webster's is. But did you notice that in each of these definitions, the word moral is used in some way. And did you notice that? What does moral mean? <laughs> Let's go back to Webster's Dictionary and see how they define moral. Webster says moral means relating to the practice, manners, or conduct of men as social beings in relation to each other and with reference to right and wrong. The word moral is applicable to actions that are good or evil, virtuous or vicious. And notice this, he says, and has reference to the law of God as the standard by which their character is to be determined. So, when you hear someone, friends, 
when you hear someone and you hear it you hear it more today than you 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 have ever before at least in in my experience when you hear someone say they don't want any moral laws don't pass your morality on to me those kinds of you know that kind of attitude those kind of statements they're basically saying they don't want any laws at all because by its very nature a law puts parameters on conduct it puts parameters on what is right and what is wrong and that's what morals are <laughs> so the conscience is that faculty of your mind that tells you to do good and not to do evil based upon moral truth which according to Webster has reference to the law of God now the conscience is located in your forehead which is the reasoning center of your brain we talked about that before if you be began to do something that you believe is evil what will your conscience do well usually it'll protest and you will have what is called a guilty conscience let's go to the book of matthew chapter six and i want you to notice these words of jesus in matthew six and we're going to look at verses 22 and 23 Jesus said this, he said, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. What does Jesus mean here? What's he mean by this? The light of the body is that insight you see that places a true value on things of of time and eternity darkness is always evil and if the light in you this is what Jesus is saying if that light in you that insight in you is darkness then your conscience will be an evil one it'll be uh, full of darkness and he says how great is that darkness the light judges things see that insight judges things and if it has the singleness of purpose of of wholehearted devotion to the kingdom of heaven and to the practice of the principles of heaven the whole body is going to be full of light but if it doesn't Jesus says the whole body will be darkness it's going to be evil now let me share this with you this is from the book mind character and personality it's volume 1, page 323. It says, These words have a first and second sense. And speaking about what Jesus said there in, in Matthew 6, 22 and 23. These words have a first and second sense, a literal and a figurative meaning. They are full of truth in regard to the bodily eye with which we see external objects. And they are true also in regard to to the spiritual eye, the conscience with which we estimate good and evil. If the eye of the soul, the conscience, is perfectly healthy, the soul will be taught aright. So if your conscience is not healthy, it's like a person with their physical eye that cannot see clearly. If you cannot see clearly, well, that can be very serious, can't it? Especially if you work with power tools. 
Not to mention if you drive vehicles or you fly planes, right? Your eyes are very important to guide the entire body. The same way that your eyes guide your physical body, your conscience is the eye of your soul, and it helps to guide your soul. So Jesus said if it is single, then your soul will be full of light. In other words, if it's single to God and heavenly things, it will be full of light. If not, it's going to be full of darkness. If something is wrong with your conscience, if you cannot see well, spiritually speaking, well, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15 about the the blind leaders of the blind? Matthew 15 and verse 14, he said, let them, he's talking about the Pharisees, he said, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. So if something is wrong with your conscience, your soul will be led in the wrong way. It'll be led towards darkness, see? Now there are many people who have a rather naive view of the conscience. They think that if their conscience tells them, uh, you know, to do something or not to do something, that, that it has to be right. And this is what I was talking about earlier, uh, in that they are, that idea that uh, they are born sinners and they can only sin, you see. And those who teach that, they assert that there's no free will. Oh, you really don't have free will. But they don't realize that the conscience, just as the physical eye, has to be educated. They don't understand that. You see, there's a reason, friends. There's a reason that God gave the Bible. And it's because your conscience without the Bible isn't trustworthy. Your conscience has to be educated. And if your conscience is educated from the wrong sources, and we see a lot of that, don't we? Especially today. Then your spiritual vision is going to be faulty and you'll make bad decisions. You will make bad choices using your will. See, And those kinds of decisions involve your eternal destiny, so it's very, very important. So your conscience tells you to do good and to avoid evil. But what is good and evil, see? Well, that involves education. It's got to be educated. Notice this. This is from a Review and Herald article, September 3rd, 1901. It says, but one says, my conscience does not condemn me for not keeping the commandments of God. But in the Word of God, we read that there are good and bad consciences. And the fact that your conscience does not condemn you in not keeping the law of God does not prove that you are not condemned in His sight. Take your conscience to the Word of God and see if your life and character are in accordance with the standard of righteousness which God has there revealed. So the conscience, friends, by itself, unless it is educated or enlightened by the Word of God, cannot be dependent upon. You cannot depend on your conscience unless it is enlightened by inspiration, by God's Word and the Holy Spirit. I've run into many people who don't adhere to the Bible. But they'll tell me. that They will swear to me that they listen to the Holy Spirit and that is what guides them. I don't need the Word of God. The Holy Spirit guides me. 
I usually ask them how they know it's the Holy Spirit, not some other spirit that's guiding their decisions. <laughs> and, and their response is usually something based upon what they deem themselves to be good and bad. Friends, our only safety from being deceived is to check everything against the Word of God. That's our only safety. You can trust the Word of God with your life, your temporal life and your eternal life. In fact, it is really the only authoritative thing you can trust with your whole heart. Here's some more counsel. This is from Manuscript Releases, Volume 1, pages 392-393. says, it, it is not enough for a man to think himself safe in following the dictates of his conscience. The question to be settled is, is the conscience in harmony with the Word of God? If not, it cannot safely be followed, for it will deceive. The conscience must be enlightened by God. That's what I've been saying. Your conscience has to be educated, see? Time must be given to a study of the scriptures and to prayer. Thus the mind will be established, strengthened, and settled. So your conscience tells you to do good and avoid evil. But you must be enlightened by the word of God so that you can truly understand the difference between good and evil and then trust the difference between good and evil, see? Now what happens if you violate your conscience? Your conscience tells you to do good and not to do evil, but your carnal nature is clamoring to do evil. What if I violate my conscience? Well, when I violate my conscience, my conscience will protest that violation, and I will have a guilty conscience, and I'm not going to feel good about it. I'm going to feel guilty. And in fact, the Holy Spirit works upon our conscience. Okay? <laughs> he helps along that line as well, see? Because He's to lead us into all truth. And he comes through us, to us through the conscience, through that reasoning center in our, our brain, see? Have you, friends, let me ask you this. Have you ever talked to somebody who has a guilty conscience over something maybe they've said or done? You know, your conscience can bother you so much that you can't sleep at night or you lose your appetite. Uh, you can't concentrate on what you're doing. Have you ever had that experience? Your conscience can interfere with everything in your daily life though, so that you just can't function very well. A conscience is very powerful. But sometimes we human beings, we get stubborn, don't we? And you know what I'm talking about. I'm not the only one. We get stubborn and we say, but I want to, right? But that's what I want to do. So we rationalize and we violate our conscience a second time. Now the second time that you violate your conscience, doing the same thing that you did the first time you violated it, your conscience still protests, but something has happened in your heart so that the protest by your conscience doesn't bother you quite as much as it did the first time. And if you violate your conscience, let's say, a third time, it'll be easier than it was the second time, and much easier than it was the first time. 
And if you keep violating your conscience, the time will come when you can do what sometime in the past would have bothered you terribly, but now it doesn't bother you to do it anymore at all. And when it gets so it doesn't bother you anymore, that's when you're in a very dangerous position, friends, eternally speaking, and maybe even temporally speaking. What has been happening during this process of violating the conscience over and over that I'm talking about? Let's go in our Bibles. Let's open our Bibles. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. And I'm going to look at verses 7 and 8. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, friends, how do you harden your heart? The way you harden your heart is you do something or you think something or you, you, you say something that you know is wrong and your conscience protests, but you want to do it. You want to do it so badly that you do it anyway, right? And the second time you do it, your heart's going to be a little more callous. It's not going to bother you quite as much. And the third time, it's not going to bother you near as much. And after you've done it a few dozen times or maybe a few hundred times, you'll be able to do it without even thinking because it has become a habit then. And one of the most terrible consequences of sin is that sin causes the conscience to be less sensitive. It becomes hardened. We become hardened in sin. Let's go back to Hebrews 3. Notice what it says in verses 12 and 13. It says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And then, notice what he says in verse 15. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. You see, if I abuse my conscience by doing something that I know is wrong, or following any practice that is wrong, I'm in the process of hardening my heart. So if you want to have a sensitive conscience, you have to educate it and not violate it. Okay? The conscience will become hardened if it's violated over and over and over. And if you lose this sensitivity of the conscience, friends, I'll tell you, you have lost one of the most wonderful gifts that God has given to the human family. And, and like I said, that's, that's one of the most awful things about sin. And I believe it's one of the, the great reasons that young people should make a decision when they're young that they're not going to have anything to do with sin. The Bible tells us that in the judgment, we answer to God for our actions, right? So we have to give an answer to God for our decisions. If you look at the prophecies... And we're very familiar with the prophecies of Revelation 13 and 14, aren't we? But they declare that this is going to be an issue at the end of the world. 
At the end of the world, the governments of the world are going to make laws. Every government of the world is going to be involved in this process of making these religious worship laws, right? They'll make laws to try to control a person's conscience. And our conscience advises our will, and then the will makes a choice. So, friends, every time a person sins, they have given control of their conscience to someone other than God. And if you allow somebody other than God to control your conscience, well, you're going to be lost. That's why Jesus said there in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. He made a choice based on the education of his conscience, see, to allow God to educate him so he can continue to make right choices. So in order to be able to stand on the right side in this final conflict that we read in Revelation with the beast and his image, we must be educating our conscience now with the word of God. And then what happens, see, is your will receives righteous advice to then make Righteous choices that will not harden your heart. So in the context of the judgment, I mean, we, we have all sinned, right? And when we sin, we have a guilty conscience. Whether we recognize that or not, friends, we, in God's eyes, we are. God sees it, and it's on the books of record, <laughs> Okay? The purpose of the gospel is to take away our guilt, remove it from the record, and restore a good conscience as well as educate our conscience in righteousness. This is a process, isn't it? This is what the gospel is about. Your conscience can never be restored so that you have a good conscience or a pure conscience unless you're living in harmony with the law of God. The conscience has to be guided, you see, by the word in order for your will to make righteous decisions that please God. Those decisions that follow His law, that hit the mark of God and not miss it by falling short. Right? Let's go back to our Bibles. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews again and we're going to look at the ninth chapter. And let's look at verse 12. And I want to show you the context of the cleansing of the sanctuary and, and, and what that has to do with the conscience. Okay? Now here, it's talking about the ceremonial law, the earthly sanctuary, okay? The earthly priesthood and the, the old covenant. And this is what it says about the earthly sanctuary in that old covenant. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says, Which was a figure for the time then present in which we were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Okay? So you could go through all of those ceremonies and those sacrifices and all those rites, but those things could not perfect your conscience as they were figures that were used primarily to teach and instruct in how to act in faith. They were the figures. They weren't the true. Okay? Now look what he says in Hebrews 10 verses 1 and 2. He says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. 
So he's talking about the ceremonial system, see? He says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? He asks the question. Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. Now let's think about what he's, he's saying to us here. You come to the sanctuary because you sinned. You, you bring a sacrifice. Remember, you had to bring a lamb, depending on the sin and such. You had to bring a lamb without spot. Or, you know, it had to be undefiled. So you bring a sacrifice and you confess your sins over the head of that animal. The sacrifice then is offered and either the blood or, or part of the sacrifice is taken into the holy place, which is the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. And your sin and these actions are then recorded in a book of record for that year. Many people don't realize that. They had it on the record. But then, see, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, you must come and afflict your soul around the sanctuary on the tenth day of the seventh month. You must afflict your soul because that is when you're going to be cleansed from your sins. The record of sins for that year will forever be erased, see? But what does it really mean to be cleansed from sin? If you are really cleansed from your sins, what does it say in Hebrews 10 verse 2? You will have no more what? He said you will have no more conscience of sin. Your conscience will tell you that you're not a sinner anymore. You're going to be choosing righteousness, see? And so... You, there's no more knowledge of that sin. It'll advise you to make righteous choices for you've been cleansed. That's what it means to be cleansed from sin. Your conscience has been perfected for you're cleansed and purified from sin. Now, if you're purified from sin and you have no more, no more conscience of sin, then during the next year, now remember the context, I'm talking about old Israel, right? The old covenant. And so, you have no more conscience of sin, then during the next year, would you come with a sin offering? No. You, you don't have to come with a sin offering. If no one in, in all of the children of Israel came with a sin offering the next year, meaning that they had not sinned, what would they do on the Day of Atonement the next year? They wouldn't have one. You see, if no one had brought a sin offering all through the year, there would be no need to have a Day of Atonement because no one had sinned. Everyone's conscience would be pure and would give the only the will the only choice to make, which would be the righteous one, and it would always make the righteous choice to follow the law of God every time. So you would never sin. And this is what's being described here in the book of Hebrews. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He said, if these sacrifices had really done the job of cleansing the conscience, if they'd really done the job, look at Hebrews 10, 2-4 again, then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. 
So Paul is saying that these sacrifices are a symbol. They're a type. They're an illustration that cannot really take away sin. If you are really cleansed from sin, you're living without sinning. And if you're not living without sinning, you're not really cleansed from sin yet. You're still conscious of sin. You see what's being said? Your conscience is not yet perfected. And so your will makes unrighteous choices at times, knowingly or unknowingly, depending upon its education in the things of God. Your will tries to hit the mark, but still continues to fall short of it, see? And that's why Jesus came. Not just to take away the guilt, or as the Bible talks about justification, and most of Christendom today says it's, it's only justification. That's all they preach about. He didn't just come to take away the guilt or justify us only, but to purify the conscience so the only advice that it gives our will is the righteousness of God's will. Are you starting to see the picture now? Now, guilt affects the conscience in incredible ways. It can affect it so bad that, like I mentioned before, you can't eat or sleep. But Jesus didn't come just to take away the guilt. He came to cleanse or purify your conscience from sin, to take it completely away. He not only came to justify, you see, but to sanctify us. And when that is completely done, that process, you are then living without sinning. You are no more conscious of sin, as Paul says. Your every decision hits the mark of God. You see, God did not desire for us to sin and confess and sin and confess and sin and confess. That's not the gospel. God wants us to learn to do His will and stop sinning. Completely stop. He wants to cleanse our conscience completely, see? And that's what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. He is cleansing the sanctuary. He is cleansing His church. He is cleansing His people. Let's go back to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 10. He says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Isn't that interesting? Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it's written of me, to do whose will? To do thy will, O God. Above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which we, uh, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So see, he's comparing those ceremonial sacrifices to the ultimate sacrifice Jesus made. Look at verse 14. He says, For by one offering, speaking of Jesus, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so we see here in the book of Hebrews that the offering of the blood of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary has a greater effect than to just forgive my guilt. 
It actually takes the power of sin out of my life. I am to become completely sanctified. In fact, the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 13, verse 12, says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. You've read that before, right? This text shows that the sacrifice of Jesus was not just for your justification, but it was to be for your sanctification, for your perfection, so that your conscience could be perfected. Some people are afraid of that word perfect. <laughs> you know, they're afraid of it. Let me give you a little homework. Take a concordance and see how many times in that concordance the word perfect, perfected, sanctify, sanctified, etc. is mentioned in the Bible. Then look up the word grace and then the word faith and compare what you find. I know it's anecdotal, but do it. I think you will be surprised. I think you'll be surprised. But we see this truth explained earlier in Hebrews 9 and, and uh, verses 13 and 14. He says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, friends, the, the conscience can never be cleansed until the power of sin is taken out of your life by choosing to give God your will. And this is very, very important for all of us to understand because it has eternal consequences. There is coming a time when Jesus is going to lay down that censer in heaven. He's not going to be the mediator. He's not going to be the high priest anymore. He's going to take those garments off and what's... He's going to put on those kingly garments and come back to this world. And before probation closes, this work we have been reading about, you know, through Hebrews here, Hebrews 9 and 10, involving the perfecting of the conscience, it has to occur in every person's life that's going to live to see Jesus come and go with him to heaven. And I want this to happen in my life. <laughs> and, and I want my conscience to be cleansed what about you, friends? What about you? If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now and you realize that there's some truth in God's Word that you've not been following, why don't you make a decision right now to change that? God has given you that power of choice. If you realize that there's something in your life that is not in harmony with God's word, won't you make a covenant with the Lord right now to do His will and not your own? That's not between you and me, friends. You have to give an account to God for your decisions. He requires an answer from each of us about our choices. <laughs> you always love Revelation. A beautiful description we find there in Revelation 3 of our Lord and Savior. He's standing at the door of our heart and He's knocking. And he's wanting entrance, isn't he? 
And it says in Revelation 3.20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And so I want to ask you, friends, do you want to make a commitment to the Lord before it's too late to change? Do you want to open the door of your heart just now? Do you want to say, Lord, I'm really in earnest. I really mean it this time. I want a conscience that's pure, that's without offense. Friends, if you're really serious and you want the Lord to give you that kind of experience, if you want Jesus in the most holy place to work in your behalf so that your conscience will be purified and cleansed, I want to invite you to pray with me as we ask Him to to give us that kind of conscience right now. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for Jesus, the Word, and the Word that was made flesh. We thank you for the Bible that helps to educate us into the truth about you and your kingdom and your principles and your love. And Father, we've been learning more and more about the sin issue. We're learning about what the will is, its function, and what our conscience is. And we pray, Lord, that we will have a cleansed conscience so that our will can make right choices that please Thee. And right now, we give You our wills so that You can do and will in our lives to Your good pleasure. And we may be bring glory to, to Your name in what we think and say and do. Please be very near to those who are struggling. Be very near to each one of us. Send angels that excel in strength to surround us and remove the evil so that we may make clear choices for Jesus. We thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for your untiring love towards each one of us who are so unworthy. And we pray this in the name of Jesus who is worthy. Amen.